Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I review the latest from Illumination Entertainment, The Secret Life of Pets, the raunchy comedy Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, and the independent two-man comedy Swiss Army Man. Let's get started. We have raw primal instincts. Hi, how are you? That are moments away from leading us home. Ah! Is it home that way? Seriously? The Secret Life of Pets. Be a good boy, Leonard. Illumination Entertainment has been one of those real hit-or-miss animation studios. Their first big picture was Despicable Me, which was, you know, successful, obviously, because they cont- that's been their main source of income. But it's never... They've always seemed to have this certain trope, and that is the Minions. The, you know, it's very non-verbal, sort of slapsticky kind of humor. It's very silent film-esque, but at the same time, it's never quite as good as those original, like, silent films, like the guys like Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. That sort of style of humor works on a broader scale. You don't need, you know, that's something that international audiences can enjoy, people from whatever background. But at the same time, it's a trope that they they tend to go back to. And you saw that a lot with their non-despicable movies, Hop, and the Lorax. I mean, especially in the Lorax, the bears and fish were definitely meant to be minions. It's like they couldn't do anything that wasn't trying to be the minions. And so here, you get something that's pretty out, you know, it's it's very not minions. It's, it's you know, it's not like anything groundbreaking, but it it's something groundbreaking for them in that they're getting outside of their normal wheelhouse. The story here is uh, essentially the Toy Story, Finding Nemo, sort of two guys get lost and have to find their way back home. And those two guys, in this case, are two dogs. A, I guess, terrier? I'm not sure what, they just refer to him as a tiny dog. Uh, called Max, played by Louis C.K. And... A bigger, like, husky, not husky, because that's an actual breed of dog, but a bigger, like, like, I'm not sure what kind of dog he is, but he's, like, big and round. He's got this kind of, like, dreadlocky brown hair uh, named Duke, played by Eric Stone Street from Modern Family. And Max is happy with his owner. You know, they, they, they you know, it's, he's living the perfect pet life in New York City until. His owner adopts Duke and brings Duke home. And then Max gets all freaked out about having to share with another dog. And so the two of them already get off on the bad foot because Duke likes the new home. But, he, you know, he can already tell Max is trying to get rid of him. So they, they you know, butt egos until they get lost in New York City and get picked up by animal control. And as they try to find their way home, their friends from their apartment complex... Uh, led by a little, like, I guess, Pomeranian? I'm not sure what kind of... She's a big, poofy... She's a little, poofy white dog uh, named Gidget, played by uh, Jenny Slate. And they've also got a Dachshund, played by Hannibal Burris, a pug, played by Bobby Moynihan, a cat, played by Lake Bell, 
and a hawk played by Finding Nemo and Finding Dory's star Albert Brooks. So this is technically Albert Brooks's second animated feature in theaters. So good for him. Uh, meanwhile, Duke and Max have to deal with the likes of Snowball, the former magician bunny turned revolutionary figure played by Kevin Hart. And so between trying to, you know, elude animal control and, you know, and keep away from the animal liberation front, let's call them. Uh, they're in the, the movie refers to them as the flush pets. That's the name of their group. But I feel like that would be the perfect time to throw in a reference to the animal liberation front because they're just as violent and crazy as the human group is in reality. Anyway, that about does it for story. And yeah, it's, it is the Toy Story, Finding Nemo sort of. Somebody, you know, the character, the main characters get lost in a, you know, in a big, in a, in this case, New York City, and they have to make their way back home. And it's about, and I've heard, you know, that's the main complaint I've heard aimed against this movie is that it's, not treading new ground story-wise. But I'll get into my issues with that argument in the discussion. I will say that for Illumination Entertainment, this is by far their best movie. Well, I'll have to go back and watch the Despicable Me stuff, but yeah, compared to like the later Despicable Me stuff and the Lorax and Hop, this is definitely their best movie. It's their most... You know, it's the one that relies the least on their childish humor and slapsticky minion style tropes. It has a actual like cohesive narrative and everything kind of works well and the humor is fun and energetic and like I gotta say, th this has got some of the best characters that I've seen for an animated like I gotta remember a lot of these characters. Not Max so much. I think the problem with Max is he's he's a bit of a mixed bag. Like, you can't tell if he's just a jerk or if, you know, like, you can't really tell, like, if he's, like, the sense of what kind of character he is. He's more of a generic protagonist. And Duke starts off a lot rougher around the edges, but you get to like him as you learn more about his backstory the more memorable characters are side characters, and personally my favorite was Jenny Slate's Gidget, who is like the little, you know, when you see her, she's like, she looks like those little, like a little lap dog, like there's nothing to her, but, and, but, you know, she sits in her apartment, you know, longing at Max from, from, from afar, and, you know, like, you can tell that she's totally digging on him, but he has an absolutely no idea. And it's not until Max goes missing that she decides to break free and lead the charge to go find him because, you know, she doesn't want her, you know, she doesn't want her main crush to go, you know, to to be lost forever. She doesn't want to lose him. And you get to see her really kind of like, you get to see her go crazy. Like there's that scene from the trailer, uh where she's, like, going completely bad cop on that naked... I think... It, well, it might have been, like, that Sphinx cat, the one that has no hair, the one that they got from, like, Austin Powers. 
she goes crazy on him and just starts slapping him, trying to get information out of him about where Max went. And yeah, that's that that's her sort of thing is like she, you know, she is so mac and hard on this guy that she will go to any means to get him back. And I really dug Jenny Slate's performance as this character, and I really dug what they did with her. Like, she's a bit naive, but at the same time, she's like, ah, just, I love what they do with her. And this is pretty middle-of-the-road by animated movie standards, but the fact that it's coming from Illumination means that it is, you know, technically their best movie to date. So, yeah, Illumination is finally making par-quality entertainment. Good on you, guys. Baby Dolly, I'm a freak little bitch. Who are these girls? This is me making us look cool. Oh! Let me throw it down. Oh my gosh, she's Superman! Your turn, Mike! Don't ever do that. I can do anything that they can do. Is it okay? Oh, she looks like burn victim Barbie. And you're Black Ken. Throw it down. Next up, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. A movie that apparently is based on a true story, despite never actually going into the actual Mike and Dave that they are supposedly basing the movie on. Anyway, this movie centers on two rowdy 20-something guys who sell liquor for a living. And when their sister is getting married... The father asks them to bring two dates in the hopes that it will quiet them down because otherwise they set off all kinds of explosions and cause all kinds of raucous behavior, you know, Project X stuff. And in their pursuit to find dates, they meet up with two girls played by Anna Kendrick and Aubrey Plaza, uh, Mike and Dave played by, I believe, Adam Devine and Zac Efron respectively. Let me double check that. Yeah, Mike and Dave are played respectively by Adam Devine and Zach Efron. And, you know, their search took them to Craigslist, to going on the Wendy Williams show, and that's where Anna Kendrick and Aubrey Plaza hear about them. And instead of going the normal route of, you know, asking them out on dates via the post... They meet them randomly in the street and kind of, you know, pull the, pull that sort of con of, oh, this is such a random chance meeting. What a coincidence. But, yeah, and then both Mike, you know, but Mike and Dave are swept off their feet by these girls. So they, those are, the, they're the ones that they bring to Hawaii. And after that, it's, it's pretty you know, standard, like, farcical comedy fare. Like, there, you know, there's the ATV bit where what happens is uh, the girls, uh, I believe it's Tatiana is the one that suggests it, but they suggest to do an ATV tour of where they shot Jurassic Park on Kauai, where they're staying, and... That, and so that's where you get this bit in the trailer where Mike accidentally lands his lands his ATV tire smack dab on his sister's face. You know, and 
I'll say this once again. It's the complaint that, yeah, we've seen this before, but I think what separates this from a lot of the other kind of like it, it references wedding crashers so and you can t- and you can see a lot of similarities but when it comes to comedies like this what really sells it more than the story is the actors and in, is the writing and here it's it seems to be a lot more improv stuff cuz Adam Devine is an improv guy he I'm not sure which uh if he was like UCB or something else but he was he's best known for workaholics and he is one of the main improvers in this in in this movie plus i mean Aubrey Plaza worked with Amy Poehler on Parks and Rec and i'm guessing there's a lot more improv on that overall but yeah i mean this whole crew i mean you got Steven Root as the dad you've got Kumail Nanjiani makes a cameo as a character you've got this one woman I've seen all over the. Uh, her she goes by Sugar Lynn Beard, and I have no idea where she comes from. Apparently, she's from a Toronto radio station, but like she plays, she, she's in all kinds of stuff. Apparently, doing all kinds of voiceover. She's gonna be in Sausage Party. Later on, 50-50 for a good time call, Aloha. And now this is probably her biggest role, at, you know, as a character. Because, like, she was a volunteer in Aloha. And I can't, and I'm not sure who she played, which character she played in For a Good Time Call. Because that was a pile of garbage that I couldn't stand. But yeah, this and but this actress, Sugar Lynn Beard, she's a lot of fun and she's quirky and she's like and she is funny. You know she works well with the rest of the cast and so and yeah, I would say that this is definitely something worth seeing. I mean, depending on your sensibilities and your sense of humor, like this is definitely. I would put this alongside things like The Hangover and Super Bad, you know, those kind of, you know, comedies that go more for the body sense of humor than anything else. But I think that everybody in the cast has all, has all kinds of chemistry working for them. Like the scene with Kumail and Sugar Lynn is, is dynamite. It's awesome. And then there's this... There's a scene where uh, comedian Alice Wetterlund, look, who looks kind of like Hannah Hart. I, I mean, I, my mind went immediately to Hannah Hart. I think Hannah Hart is the one I'm thinking of. Yep, that's, that's where my mind immediately went. My mind immediately went to Hannah Hart. But apparently it's, uh, act, apparently it's this woman named Alice Wetterlund who UCB... Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, MTV's Girl Code, and the HBO sitcom Silicon Valley. So yeah, she's she's she gets one of the best scenes of the movie, you know, working with Aubrey Plaza, and the, everybody like has this, you know, like great dynamic going on. 
uh, Zach and Zach Efron and Adam Devine work off each other well. Aubrey Plaza and Andra, Anna, Aubrey Plaza and Anna Kendrick are like an awesome. Like you completely buy them as these two best friends, and like you know, it's it, this it's this great chemistry between everybody in the cast working off of each other in their roles, and like that could have easily faltered. And I can definitely see like the one thing I would say is Wetterland does kind of feel a bit stilted and awkward. Like it feels like she's trying to pretend to be Hannah Hart. That's where because I mean that's exactly where my mind went when I saw her. But I think everybody, for the most part, is on point. And I got to say, if you are a fan of these kind of, you know, raunchy sort of farcical comedies, I would definitely check this out because it's a lot of fun if, you, that's, if that's right up your alley. And this was definitely right up my alley. When there's seven billion people on the planet, you might be lucky enough to bump into the one person you want to spend the rest of your life with. This is the life I've forgotten. This is just the beginning. Alrighty, last up for this weekend is an independent movie that actually got released, I believe, a few weeks ago. Limited release 20, June 24th, wide on July 1st. But there was nothing really else coming out this weekend, so you know, so in tr so in trying to find something to you know round out the schedule, I decided to go with Swiss Army Man, and it's basically yeah, two man independent comedy starring Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe, and I'll say this right off the bat: this is going to be on my top 10 list for the end of the year for best movies. This really, really worked. Like, this is the, this is the kind of movie that, read, you know, pushes what you consider, like, great film. Like, this is the kind of, like, this is way outside the box, and it's funny and clever, and Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe were great off of each other, and it's like, weird and quirky and awkward and it's like perfect for me like I can't and like the story elements I feel like work so well kind of showing off you know the how these characters are and it's just ah yeah I love love this movie basically the story is Paul Dano is uh marooned on an island although I think he's just on the coast some He's out, he's on an island and then ends up on the coast, I think in like the Pacific Northwest, it looks like. They're never really quite, you know, sure of a setting or location. But yeah, he starts off marooned and then he, he's about to kill. <laughs> first, first shot of the film is Paul Dano about to kill himself by hanging <laughs> You know, because he's been so stranded for so long on this island. And then he ends up seeing a, a person lying there on the beach and he breaks and the rope breaks and he goes to check it and it's Daniel Radcliffe, but he's dead. So he's just like, oh, you know, my one shot to find 
you know, somebody on this island so I'm not just stranded here by myself and then I get a dead body. But before, but he start, then starts to see Daniel Radcliffe isn't exactly any normal dead body. The one, the main thing is Daniel Radcliffe has this weird buildup of gas where it's basically like a stream of gas coming out of his butt. And that's the main thing is you see Paul Dano riding Daniel Radcliffe like he's a friggin' jet ski because of the fart gas, because of the farts are so powerful coming out of Daniel Radcliffe's corpse. Like this. This shouldn't work. This shouldn't be as good as it is, given that sort of premise. It's like, oh, hey, it's a dead body, and you, and he's propelled by his own farts. That's like something a six-year-old can come up with. But it works. It's, it's crazy, and it's fun. And that's because after, you know, that in their initial meeting, uh, Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe escape the island and end up somewhere in the Pacific Northwest in the woods, and... The reason he's called, it's called Swiss Army Man is because Paul Dano realizes that Daniel Radcliffe has this weird, weird, crazy set of skills as a dead body. Like, he can propel things from his mouth, like, like he's used, like, Dano uses him as, like, a gun and to shoot um, a repelling claw or whatever, a grappling hook to to, to, to climb up places he uses his arms as like like karate for karate chop action to break down stuff ah just these weird inventive ways of using i think parts of it are daniel Radcliffe, like a like a daniel radcliffe dummy cuz there's that image going around of daniel radcliffe sitting next to his corpse dummy and yeah, the the crazy event of things, and then as the story goes on, it tur- the the corpse starts talking to him, and they and it's kind of like this weird introspective way for Paul Dano to look at his own life as this as this guy, this character, this uh, as Daniel Radcliffe falls in love with this woman on Paul Dano's phone, thinking it's his, and it's this. It's like this, it's like a, almost like a romantic storyline. There's like this romantic storyline of Paul Dano, like building this life around Daniel Radcliffe dating the girl on his phone. And yeah, it's, it's a, such a crazy out there story. And I was commenting like my main, I thought for those who don't follow me on Twitter or Facebook, Basically, I after every showing, I give my initial thoughts on a movie, and my initial thought on this was, this is amazing, and you'd never see a major studio invest in something like this. This is this is why I love independent cinema sometimes, you know? Because you get those really weird, out-there stuff that's not enjoyable, stuff like Lars von Trier, or um, that Brown Bunny movie that the guy did where it's like very, you know legally dubious the actions he did with the actress in the movie but then you get then sometimes independent movies give you stuff like this where it's like oh my god this is so weird and crazy and out there and like amazing and i and i love i i loved every bit of this movie and like the thing is as the story progresses you you begin to discover more and more about paul dano's life prior to the you know prior to being marooned and it's 
it's real crazy and weird to think about. But yeah, it's and like the way it, it never quite goes the way you think it's going to go. Like, I, I, like you this, the, as far as story goes, because this is to go along with the theme of this episode. This is a story that's been that's kind of been told before of the journey to get back home. And yet, and yet, you can never quite—you're never quite sure which way they're gonna go. Because as stuff goes on, it's—you know—it's never as predictable as you think. You know, you like you, if I showed this to you and you, as you were watching it, you were predicting what's gonna happen. You would have no idea what's going to what's gonna go down next. But it's—it's it's real crazy. And like these guys, uh, Daniel Sh- Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan. Go by just Daniels. That's their uh, that's their title for uh, the direct. You know, directed by a a a film by a Daniels film. You know, directed by Daniels because they you know kind of like how it's the Wachowski siblings and uh, the Cohen brothers. Uh, for these guys, they go by the Dan- they go by just Daniels, and this is their first real major motion picture because. Looking at their stuff, it's TV episodes and film shorts. So yeah, this is their fir- their first writing gig. You know, they wrote the movie, they directed it together, and it's it's um it's real. I, this is the kind of stuff that's like, okay, this is how crazy you are on your own. Let's see what you let, let's see what else you guys can do. I really want to see what these guys do next and it's it's ah I, I can't praise this movie enough it is it is unlike anything i've seen in a long time so yeah if you get the chance to see swiss army man starring paul dano and daniel radcliffe i definitely recommend that you see it because if nothing else there's nothing else like you'll haven't seen you'll never see anything else like it all right after the break I'll be back to talk about the seven basic movie plots. Same old story, same old song. Goes on right till it goes on wrong. Now you're going, then you're gone. Same old story, same old song. So yeah, the major theme of this episode has been the story's been done before. And the one thing I can... Because between Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates and Secret Life of Pets, a lot of the complaints that I've seen, a lot of the criticisms has been, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. How about you show us something new? And yeah, and yet at the same time, they were, when you show them Swiss Army Man, a lot of the criticisms are, this is too weird. What is this movie? Ah, people are freaking... That's why I've, I'm done with guys like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and seeing what the professionals think. But so you know what? Screw those guys. You know, you know they're saying movies like Interstellar and God knows... Like, that was my big beef with them at the end of last year because I was watching 
I went to see The 33, which is the movie about the Chilean miners, and it was a, it was like a really good, and I, I, I saw the movie because my dad read the book about the story in his book club, and we went to see the movie, and we both liked it. We lo- And he knew more about it than I did, and he said that's pretty much everything that happened. So it's like, holy crap, this movie depicts pretty much everything that happens as it happens. It's well acted. It's well, you know, the production values are, you know, very good. You know, it's not like amazing production values, but like when they do the cave-in and the stuff that's done underground, it's, it's solid production work. And yeah, it's a great, it's a great movie. I, I, if you're ever interested in seeing about the, you know, seeing what happened, the 33 is definitely a solid, a solid movie to watch in place of like a documentary that's more fact, but you know, it's more about just documenting the actual events that happened. But when I went to see what the critics were saying about it, because they were like, their complaints were like, yeah, here's the thing that got me, their consensus Critics' consensus. The 33 offers an appropriately inspirational account of real-life heroism, but its stirring story and solid performances are undermined by a flawed focus and an over-reliance on formula. What does that even mean? Can somebody tell me what that even means? Because to me, that's gobbledygook. That's, That's nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. It's like, okay, it's an account of real-life heroism. It's a stirring story and solid performances. Flawed focus on what? And what formula? You just said this is real life. What what formula are you even talking? I feel... You see why I'm upset? You see why this upsets me? Because this is nonsense, what they're talking about. And... To go to one of the ones this week, Mike and Dave need wedding dates. Mike and Dave need wedding dates. Benefits from the screwball premise and the efforts of a game cast, even if the sporadically hilarious results don't quite live up to either. Ah, that's why I use that. Vo- that's why I use that sort of um, foppish voice for this mo- for the for Rotten Tomatoes anymore. Just because it's like, look at me, I'm a critic. I, you know, it's it's that um, ah, what's his name from Ratatouille, uh, Anton, ah, something, Anton Ego. Oh, they, ah, that's such a perfect name for that too, Anton Ego. And yeah, that's that's the critic. That's critics. That's critics in a nutshell because, eh, look at me. I'm telling you how you screwed up. That's why I tend to go for more just reviewers than critics. Because, uh, yeah, he goes by the nostalgia critic. But I, I think when you watch, like, when he and his brother uh, sibling, do sibling rivalry, uh, or especially, like, the the videos that Brad Jones, uh, cinema snob, does in his car after a, after a showing of something... That's way more honest, and it, it takes, a, like, like you'll get a better opinion out of those kind of sort of reviews than you will out of some pompous piece of crap out in L.A. or New York acting like his history of, just because he knows about film history somehow makes him a better judge of whether or not a movie is good. 
and I and I was talking about this to somebody on Twitter again. <laughs> Once again, another week, another another Twitter conversation. But this one was about how because um, I follow rap critic on Twitter. You should you should follow rap critic, and you should also watch his movie his movies, the his videos on YouTube because they are rap critic is one of my favorite reviewers one of my favorite one of the favorite guys to come out at channel awesome and he was he was uh lamenting a lot of the uh let me pull up the conversation i forget the context okay he, okay here's the initial conversation uh, i was following rap critic and he and his tweet was about um watching a black panthers documentary and his thought was did the kkk have to deal with any of these problems, um, talking about how the Black Panthers had a lot of pushback from the U.S. government, and my thought, my, my comment was, nope. Instead, they gave them a blockbuster. Instead, they got a blockbuster movie made about them, and then I show the poster for Birth of a Nation, and then I say that hopefully future generations will look at will look up, will remember Birth of a Nation as the story of Nat Turner and the slave rebellion rather than about the KKK. And some guy was going off about how, well, no, it's good because Birth of a Nation, as much of it, as bad as the subject matter is, is one of those seminal films of film history, and it'll always be. And he was making the point about how, like, D.W. Griffith did so much to kind of put into place all these different tropes of filmmaking that are still used to this day, like. You know, you could teach an entire class about how there are movies like *Birth of a Nation* and *The Triumph of the Will*, the one that the woman did for the Nazis in the '30s. How those kind of movies helped to shape how we make movies now. Like a lot of the editing techniques and the direction, a lot of the storytelling aspects of it. But my point was that that stuff. You know, hopefully. To the general public, they'll think of Birth of a Nation as about Nat Turner, not about the KKK. Because ultimately, the film-going public and, you know, gener- the film-going public and even a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers, they're not going to know, they're not going to all have taken film history classes. Most up-and-coming filmmakers are probably just guys on YouTube trying to tell their own kind of stories. That's how you get, you know, they're they're making the kind of shorts that they do. They're making the kind of you know, think to experiment with how they want to make film. These guys aren't worried about Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin or how D.W. Griffith shaped the way we make film with the birth of a nation. They're not worried about the, you know, the... Because that's the thing. Film history is good. It's always good to know the history of something. Like, the seeing the transition from sound to from silent to sound or from black and white to color, the differences in technology. But ultimately it's good. While it's good to have that sort of stuff in posterity to look back on, you do need to move, you know, filmmakers are always moving forward. Like unless you're a guy like Quentin Tarantino, who continually references old movies, nobody's ever heard of filmmakers aren't worried about, how somebody else did it. They're worried about making a thing and putting their stamp on it. So, yeah, while the the guy's got a point about 
how D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation will always be in the history books, especially in terms of filmmaking history. Nobody really cares outside of that. That's not an important factor for modern-going filmmakers. Modern filmmakers and modern filmgoers. You know, you ask people going to the movies now what they care about Battleship Potemkin or D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Most of them probably have never even heard of it. Like... They'll probably remember it as the KKK movie, but they're not going to worry about the filmmaking techniques that D.W. Griffith used to tell this story you know, almost over 100 years ago, I think, by now. It's, that's not important to filmgoers, and it's ultimately not as important to filmmakers anymore. Anyway, the discussion this week centers on the seven basic movie plots. I forget who... And pull up who wrote the book. Seven Basic Plots was a 2004 book written by Christopher Booker and, and analyzes the basic plots for not just films, but just all of the written word. You know, all of storytelling can be broken down into seven basic plots. And there's all kinds of stuff. Um, Saving the Cat was another book that talked about basic movie plots, and there's, like, another one that I got where it was six basic movie plots, but I'm just going to go off of this one, so it's the one that really pops up most on the Google search, on the Googles. First plot, overcoming the monster. That's the biggest one. And it's not just a monster like with Beowulf was the one they talked about, but overcoming the monster is good beating evil. You know, triumphing over the insurmountable odds. So you got Pretty much all the stuff from, like, Seven Samurai to Hunger Games to Harry Potter. Any play, any story that has to do with a big bad and having to defeat him, that's overcoming the monster. Star Wars was all about that. Um, God, I'm trying to think. Jaws wants to get overcoming the, the literal monster. But, yeah, most story... Te- more, like, that's kind of the main story is overcoming the monster. Trying to beat the big bad. Uh, next one is Rags to Riches, and that's where you get stuff like Cinderella, Pretty Woman, um, about, you know, Me Before You kind of has that aspect to it. It's, the, yeah, it's the story of somebody who goes from nothing to having anything they could ever want. After that is The Quest, that's, that's where you're only going one way, you know, it's all forward motion. Iliad, Watership Down, Land Before Time... All of those movies are about going one direction, not worrying about getting back, just going one direction. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, I, could, I don't know enough of their songs to make a reference. Uh, but yeah, going for, always going towards the, towards the destination, not worrying about coming back from it. That part goes to Voyage and Return. That's where you get The Odyssey, Alice in Wonderland, The Hobbit, Finding Nemo, Toy Story, Secret Life of Pets, The Voyage in Return is the one where you go out, where you're lost and have to come back home. And that's the one that kind of gets told over and over again, especially in children's movies, because it's very simple and easy to tell. Number five is comedy, and that's kind of like any sort of farcical 
story, the, the their terms of for his term for comedy was to have a happy ending and for good characters to triumph. And it's not as like heavy as like overcoming the monster, good triumphing over evil. It's more like, oh hey, it's it's a happy ending. Everybody lived happily ever after. And so that's where you get mid you know Midsummer Night's Dream, much ado about nothing, four weddings and a funeral. I would you know I would qualify Mike and Dave need wedding dates as this as the as the comedy because it's all about the happy ending and the characters triumphing at what they're doing and all that. Number six is tragedy, which goes back to the Shakespearean idea of the flawed character is the is the you know causes the reasons for his own undoing and the you know Macbeth Hamlet Julius Caesar but then in the wiki also noted uh Death Note and Breaking Bad is also you know examples of the tragedy storytelling where yeah it's this character who's not a you know who's very you know who's got all these different flaws working against him ego you know a lot of egotism and narcissism you know delusions of grandeur things of that nature and then because of their own actions, they, you know, it's because of their own actions that they, you know, that they ultimately face whatever it is that they end up facing in the end. And the last one is Rebirth. And that's where you get stuff like Princess and the Frog, Beauty and the Beast, Christmas Carol. I threw in Wreck-It Ralph and Frozen because it's all about the idea of a character rediscovering themselves. And... They also threw in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Secret Garden, Mega Mind, all you know, char- you know, movies that focus on a character either changing from bad to good or kind of experiencing this sort of you know revelation about who they are. So yeah, those are the f- those are the seven basic ones: overcoming the monster, rags to riches, vo- quest. Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy, and Rebirth. That's who this particular author kind of broke things. There are other ways to break it down, but those are kind of the ones we'll go with for this episode. I can go to other different stuff like the hero's journey and that sort of thing. But yeah, for the for the for right now, let's go with these seven. And you could break down pretty much any movie into these kind of seven plot structures so to go with let's go with the top 10 wor- best and worst movies that i had t- that i that i've covered so far this year for the worst uh batman v superman that would be i guess partly rebirth for batman and then overcoming the monster definitely ultimately uh gods of egypt is voyage and return mostly Voyage of Return, and then also Overcoming the Monster. There's going to be a lot of, you know, collusion between plots for the most part. Mother's Day, straight comedy. There's lighthearted, not, you know, not about, not, you know, not very, not very heavy themes going on. Money Monster would be, would be tragedy, ultimately. They're, they're going for a tragic element for Money Monster, me before you was partly comedy and partly tragedy, you know, because the one character, one character, fa- and also rags to riches, because the one character does go from being stuck in a flat with her entire family to 
working in a castle to being able to travel the world. God, the, uh, the Shallows is overcoming the monster, obviously. God's Not Dead 2 would also be overcoming the monster. The monster in that case being the ACLU. And for Norma the North, it's mostly Voyage and Return and overcoming the monster again. So, yeah, there's, you know, you can break so many of these things down. Uh, for the other stuff that came out this year that I actually enjoyed, Legend of Tarzan would be overcoming the monster mostly and the quest. That's Those are the two main ones going on because it's the quest to, you know, get his wife back in that one and also overcoming the monster of... Uh, Christoph Walter's character. Green Room is overcoming the monster mostly, trying to, you know, overcome the neo-Nazi anarchists that are trying to kill them. Miles Ahead is... Miles Ahead's an interesting one. Uh, definitely part tragedy, because a lot of Miles Davis's own shortcomings lead to where he is in the present in that movie. But also, I would say... There's, a, there's definitely a quest, I think, or a voyage in return, where it's about getting this MacGuffin back from from somebody. Uh, Kung Fu Panda 3 is, de is definitely the quest, because they're going off to the Panda Kingdom. And Secret Life of Pets is voyage in return. Nice Guys is... Shoot, how would you fit a mystery movie into this... Most likely overcoming the monster because they're overcoming the big bad of the movie, who the people who are trying to kill, you know, the people who are going around killing the their uh, killing people. I guess maybe partly rebirth because it's about for Ryan Gosling's character. So yeah, this list isn't exactly perfect. You know, nothing nothing's gonna you know, fit into every, you know, you're not going to fit every single story into this. But it's, you know, it's a nice starting point, at least. Uh, Swiss Army Man, I said, was uh, kind of tragic, with, but mostly Voyage and Return. Because it's about, or would it be the quest? Because he doesn't journey out and come back. He starts out and he has to come back. So that may be more the quest. Um... Deadpool is mostly overcoming the monster. The monster being Francis. <laughs> uh, Zootopia is overcoming the monster, kind of, with some rebirth in the terms of you know, in terms of both characters, because they both kind of over you know, kind of rediscover who they are. Also, I guess, kind of some voyage in return because they're going about the different areas of the, of Zootopia, and then Captain America: Civil War is ooh, um, mostly overcoming the monster. Um, but ah, oh, god, yeah, Th maybe this list wasn't as good as they thought it was. But but ultimately, yeah, these are the. That's what that's kind of, that may be a good thing because that shows that these movies aren't as definable. But yeah, I, that's the thing. These basic plots have always been around, and that's why the the complaint that oh we've seen this before is is so annoying is that yes you have you've seen everything before you have literally seen every story told already. 
What changes is the stuff around the story. So quit complaining that you've seen the story told already because, yes, you have. You have always seen the story told because it's one of the basic stories of human history. So, you know, come up with something else to complain about. Uh, as for me, uh, the, the th main thing is to kind of add originality to these plots, and that's, that's really how you overcome that complaint of, oh, we've seen this story before. We haven't seen, like with, um, Swiss Army Man, it's the quest, it's get it, you know, it's journeying to get back somewhere, and you've seen that story before in, in the Iliad, in... Watership Down and Land Before Time and all kinds of other quest-based move, you know, movies about trying to get somewhere. You know, it kind, you know, parts of the Moses story are about this. And how do you change that by making it about a flirting corpse <laughs> and making it about Paul Dano's character and his backstory? So the first thing that you really need to do when it comes to these sorts of things is well, number one, change the setting. Make the setting different. Change where the where the story takes place. That can do a lot. You know, that's how you get stuff like going from Seven Samurai to Magnificent Seven to Battle Beyond the Stars, where it's these heroes gathered together. You know, it's the same story, but the setting changes a lot. And, you know, that's how so many stories with the same plot come about, but at the same time, you don't really think about the plot because the element, you know, even though the elements are the same, the setting changes drastically. And on top, and after that, once you've got a new setting to kind of differentiate between the stories, the other thing to have is realistic and like, and or likable care. Like, you need to have characters that you believe could exist, that you buy as actual characters, because. Though if you can't believe in them as actual characters, like if you don't see them as anything more than just like somebody attempting to write a character, then that's not going to help you with the movie. That's the thing with like Norm of the North is you don't really buy them as character characters. They're more like people's attempts at making a statement on something, and they're not really like. Real, you know, you never really buy any of the character because none of them have any decent motivation, and nothing works for them. And on top of that, they're not likable characters either. Not to say that you have to like a character where it's where they're not a good character, you know, because you can. But at the same time, if it's a character like say Joffrey or Kylo Ren, Darth Vader, um, I'm trying to think of other like major. Like, unlikable villain. Like, where it's a villain where you're not supposed to like them. That at least means that you're, you, you believe them as a character. That at least means you can see them existing. And that it, it's palpable and you really, and it really can get to you. That's a good character. That's a well-written character that can, that makes you hate them as though they're a real person. And then the only other thing to do with writing, I would say, is... Screw around with the tropes and expectations. Like with Swiss Army Man, you know, the trope, you know, the tropes for those are you would expect a happy, you know, happy, you know, all these different happy things to go about, and you would expect, you know, things, you know, he would it would be like a homeward bound thing of they're they're back home and it's all good. And it's that's the that's the main 
people think people expect. But that's not you know. But you don't you know you may not get that. And and then and a good movie is, is like eh, you know you're expecting this and then whoop oh, well, wait where, 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 this guy went off to the left uh, but where would he go what's going on that sort of thing that's that's how you get people to pay attention and remember it's like oh wait but then there's the thing where this where you think this is gonna happen and then whoop nope that's not what happens. That's not what happens. And then, yeah, that, so yeah, if you can, as a writer, mess around with people's expectations of what is going to happen, that's how you get people hooked on it, I think. Um, as far as cast, the only, the next thing that you should do for these kind of things is the casting. And the last couple of weeks have been, and like, I like you could go through all kinds of different movies and like you hear about the casting choices that they were working with and there I'm trying I'm trying to think of one where the casting choices never worked. Um I guess me before you well Norma the North none of the casting choices worked cuz nothing nothing was nothing about the cast was stellar or you know it was. It felt very workmanlike. It felt like they were just eh, let's pump this thing out, crank. But if you can get a cast that has that dynamic energy and they all work together well, like that was my main thing about Central Intelligence. The story itself isn't all that. Like, like you, if you saw that with anybody else in it, you would completely forget about it. It would be a directed DVD story. But what helps sell the movie is Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson. Their chemistry together is some of the best I've seen out of a comedy duo in years. So, if you so if you can get guys like that, or the or the groups from Neighbors and uh, a lot of Seth, Ro- you know, a lot of the Seth Rogen, Judd Apatow crew. Uh, I'm trying to think. I list the original Ghostbusters cast because those guys had this great dynamic going on, and you really liked how they interacted with each other. Ah, so I mean, if there's a good cast dynamic, where it's not just like that was the whole thing of like the original Star Wars versus the the prequels. In the original Star Wars, those those you know those actors at least kind of built up that dynamic between each other. In the prequels, you could tell people were just kind of like sterile and just reading their lines. And I mean, I believe you know from what I can from you know citation needed. Apparently, uh, Natalie Portman was definitely going out of her way to just get through everything and not put in any kind of effort, as you know, as opposed to Ewan McGregor, who put in and who put in a lot more effort. But at the same time, you're dealing with a guy who has no idea how to direct people, so how, you know you the actors are kind of almost left to their own devices. And then you also go to things like. I saw that I saw this more recently with X-Men Apocalypse with Jennifer Lawrence doing what Natalie Portman did, where she just wants she's done. She just doesn't want to do this anymore. And you could see that in the performance and the dynamic isn't there as much. You know, you get great performances in Apocalypse with from mostly Michael Fassbender, but you also get it from James McAvoy. Oscar Isaac does a good performance. The actress who plays Storm is solid, but, uh, oh, um, Cody Smith McPhee as Nightcrawler is good. Individual performances are good, but there's no real great chemistry 
between the characters. And you can feel that. And you can feel that it's it's not about the characters as much as it is about just 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 getting a thing done and trying to make money. Not that making money is a bad thing, but if you're telling us, but when you're making money off of something that requires art and finesse, and you're just kind of clunkily going about things, you know, go, you know, when you, it, bleh. when it's the, it's the difference between you know, you let's say using a, a surgeon, uh, a surgeon using a scalpel. Using uh, you know a diner using a steak knife and a lumberjack using a chainsaw. You kn- when it comes to movies, you don't always want to you, you want to stay away from the chainsaw unless you're going for big action set pieces. You don't need the big chainsaw for big action set pieces. At the same time, you don't always want the surgeon scalpel to make like a meticulously thought out like you know because that's the thing with movies that try to be the Dark Knight, like Zack Snyder's super uh, DCU stuff, and uh, I'm trying to think, like movies that almost take themselves too seriously. That, you know, where it's a fantasy setting, but everybody's, re- oh, um, Jupiter Ascending, where everybody's taking it so seriously, and it's like trying to use a surgeon's scalpel to get that, to get those touches in, but it's... It, Sometimes it's better to use a steak knife, you know? You don't have to be as precise, but you can cut but you can cut a lot cleaner than if you tried to use the chainsaw. Which is more like Michael Bay's Transformers. Michael Bay's Transformers are chainsaws. I would say I would say mm, would be a good example. I would say Ridley Scott's original alien movie would be a steak would be a steak knife and then John Carpenter's the thing would probably be like the surgeon scalpel or you get things like jaws would be a steak knife and then uh, like a Kubrick movie 2001 would be a, a scalpel so that kind of diff- it, it's some finding that dynamic where you don't need it to be a precise but you don't want to be too broad either Finding that great dynamic of the steak knife between the, you know, between being precise in certain areas, clean in other areas, and then just ball, you know, just going all out in others. That's how you get stuff like Mad Max, where it's like certain aspects are clean, you know, are cleaner, cut their kind of steak knife part. You know, the slow, a lot of the slower parts are steak knife, and then when it goes to action set pieces, it's all-out chainsaw action, you just whatever, you know, all kinds of no- craziness. Anyway, uh, I got way off topic with that, but yeah, as long as you can get a dynamic cast that really likes working together, that can save a whole lot of things. Like, Mike and Dave would not be as good if not for the cast. Like, if it was any, you know, if, you, if there was somebody in that cast that did not work you know, and was like a detriment to the movie, that would have been way, you know, people would have been way more turned off of it. But from what I can tell, people are digging it, digging the cast and digging the movie, aside from pompous snobs who get paid to, paid, they get paid to stick their nose 
up at mainstream media, at the mainstream, at mainstream moviegoers, essentially. So who cares what they think? Screw that. You know, they're in the day, in the age of the internet, the, the, the job of the critic is unnecessary because everybody's a critic. And then the last thing I, the last thing I wanted to, to talk about was direction when it comes to adding that sort of originality to something, because the main thing is the writing. It starts at the, it start. I've always thought it starts at the writing stage. Any great, cha- anything, you know, you can tell a lot about how a movie will turn out from the writing stage, but at the same time, it takes a good cat. It takes the, it takes a good cast to bring that writing to life and a good director to help bring that to the screen. And for a director, you need to know which tricks to use and which to lose. I dig that little sentiment there. You need to know which cam, you know, which camera tricks, which, which filmmaking techniques. You know, that's where the history might come in handy. But at the same time, if as long, you know, if as long as you know what what to do as a director to kind of keep in line with what people like and what people know, and then know where to deviate enough to de- to. And then know where to deviate enough to set your movie apart. I think that's the key. With guys like the Russo brothers, they're keeping in line with a lot of what Marvel wants in terms of action, set pieces, and whatnot. But they know where to differentiate themselves in terms of storytelling and in terms of how they develop their film in order to set it apart. And that's why they tend to be... That's why they've pretty... They are the ones who've made my favorite Marvel movies to date. And I'm really interested to see whether it's within the Marvel Cinematic Universe or otherwise, what else they do. Uh, And then the last thing I would say is, once again, keep in mind what previous movies have done. Knowing your history can help out a lot. Where you can point out, okay, here's what, not just like, but not like seminal stuff like Birth of a Nation, uh, Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, or... You know, things of that, you know, like big, big, you know, those kind of sweeping changes that help to bring about things. I think it helps more to know what didn't work. Like, like, here's the thing that somebody, I want to try a thing. Did somebody try that before? How well did it work? Where can I learn from their mistakes? That sort of thing. I feel like that's way more important because otherwise you will make those same mistakes that that guy did that, that the original people have made. And you'll be, you know, and you'll be in the same boat and your movie will be, you know, will be remembered the same way. So, yeah, the seven basic, these seven basic movie plots don't exactly encompass everything. There are probably other lists that may be easier to fit movies in, like Civil War, like Zootopia, like The Nice Guys. But ultimately, yeah, these are seven basic movie plots that a lot of stories, you know, television novels, anything kind of can kind of fit in in some way. And there are other, you know, different plots that you could say are the basic plots that every movie does, like the Die Hard plot or the Hero's Journey. But ultimately, the stories have all been told before. It's what you do with the story. It's what you do with the story that sets it apart. And that's my point is that, oh, Complaining that you've seen this story told before doesn't mean anything because, yes, all stories have been told before. So 
so that's there's not you know there's nothing there's not a complaint there that's just a fact of writing as long as we've been telling stories the stories have all been told it's what we do with the stories now that matters and if you can and if it doesn't work if and if something in the writing doesn't work something in the casting doesn't work something in you know something doesn't work for you then it's then it's not just oh I've seen the story before I've seen it done better. Well, you've seen different settings and you've seen better craftsmanship, maybe, but it's not the story's fault that you've heard it before, because you've heard every story before. You've heard all of the stories now. The point is now to find new ways of telling those stories. We've been at that point since probably the written word. I think you know the start of the written word. We were we were telling stories, you know, verbally, passing them down by word of mouth, and now it's finding a way to make those, you know, putting those stories down and then playing around with them, seeing what you can do with them. That's the point. So, quit complaining that you've seen the story done before. You've seen every story done before. Anyway, that about does it for this week. I'll, and that means it's time for the plugs. If you are listening to Popcorn Junkie, you are most likely listening to us on SoundCloud. The home of Popcorn Junkie is soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie. And there you can get all of the new episodes as they come out. So if you want to keep up to date on the, all the new episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie and follow us there. You'll also find the podcast on iTunes. I am on the iTunes store. Just go to the podcast section of the iTunes store and look up Popcorn Junkie. And there you'll find my orange mug chomping down on popcorn. And the SoundCloud stream will go right to your iTunes. So, and if you really want to help the podcast out and you do use the iTunes store, or even if you don't, make sure you leave a five-star rating and review on the iTunes store to... To let people know that, hey, this podcast is good. You should check it out. So if you get the chance, go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review for Popcorn Junkie on the iTunes store. And I will be sure to read your reviews on the air as they come out. But if you also want to help the podcast out financially, you can always subscribe to the podcast on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, you can support this podcast in any number of ways just just by donating your money. That way you can really help us expand and advance the podcast. The main thing right now is that I want to get a secondary podcast called Make a Better Movie. For a preview of that, check out episode three, Making a Better Superman, wherein I talk about Batman v Superman and how I would make a better Superman. But that's not all. For any troublesome movies that didn't work either in the writing, the casting, the direction, whatever went wrong, I go in like a teacher with their little red marker and say, let's fix this, fix this, fix this. This could be changed. And see, you know, see, go about seeing if I could make these movies better. Hence, making a better movie. Titles include, titles include, but are not limited to, Fantastic Four, Age of Ultron, The Nightmare on Elm Street series, The Texas Chainsaw series, Seventh Son, The Last Witch Hunter, Hey, maybe even har- maybe even worse movies like Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey or Norm of the North. If there's a movie you want me to check out and see if I can make it any better, then just subscribe to the podcast on patreon.com slash popcornjunkie to help us reach our goal to make that podcast a reality. And then you can even suggest titles for me to take a look at. 
If you can't help the podcast financially, you can always follow us on social media. The social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, and there you'll get all, all the updates on new episodes as they come out, as well as hearing my initial thoughts on movies as I am leaving the theater. Plus, if you want to get my thoughts on the trailers that play before each showing, just follow at cornjunkiepod on twitter.com, and there you'll hear my thoughts on the trailers that play before each of my showings for the week. So, if you want to follow the podcast, go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, or follow at cornjunkiepod on Twitter for any updates as they come out. And lastly, if you want to send us a message, either your own criticism, any kind of feedback, any kind of request, any kind of questions at all, send them to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you want it read on the air, I can read it out on the air too. Just make sure you let me know, otherwise I can just get back to you via email. So, any sort of feedback, criticism, questions, suggestions, anything at all, send that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and don't stop me, but you've heard the story before. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. piece of garbage freaking rotten tomatoes suck my gnats screw those screw those freaking ugh critics make me sick ugh anyway wait, wait.